Well, if you have a Bible with you, uh, please turn to the book of Titus, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one from the Bibles in these black chair pockets. There's also a stack of them at the ends of the side aisles if you want to borrow one. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. Um, We're turning to Titus, the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2. If you're using one of these uh, Bibles we've provided, that's on page 857, almost at the back. Titus, chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, though we'll be focusing on verses 11 to 14, and this will also be on the screen behind me. So please, please follow along as I read. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful time we've already had so far of, as Lucas said, reveling. Reveling in your grace. Reveling, boasting in what Jesus has done for us. We love that you're a God of grace. We love that you tell us that you're a God of grace. And I ask that you would help us to see it this morning in your word. Please come by your spirit, speak to us, help us hear you, and help us respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you know that I have the privilege of being the father of two little boys, the older of whom is three, and that means that the most common word in my house is why. Why is it time for bed? Why do you have to work today? Why can't we go to the park when it's raining? Why is Asher crying? Why aren't there any volcanoes in the Cayman Islands? We're in a volcano phase right now. Why? He wants to understand everything. And even though when he's sleeping, I don't miss all the whys, why is a question I'm glad he's asking. Verses 11 to 14 of Titus chapter 2 are the why of chapter 2. They explain why Paul is making the argument he is. So next week, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. We'll rewind next week and look at verses 1 to 10, where Paul 
unpacks what it means to live godly lives, what it means for people who have trusted in Jesus to show it with their lives. But verses 11 to 14 are the why. Why are godly lives fitting for Christians? Why should we pursue godliness? And the answer Paul gives is surprising because the answer of why we ought to be godly, he says, is grace. And I don't want you to take my word for it, so I want to show you right up front where Paul says this so we can see where we're going. If you look at verse 11 of Titus chapter 2, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, that's the kind of grace that it is, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So if you boil that down, Paul's big idea is grace trains us to live godly lives. That's the big idea, but it's a surprising idea because of what grace is. So grace is one of the most important words in the world. Grace is the beauty of Christianity. Grace is God's undeserved favor. So it's the idea that God relates to us not according to our goodness, but according to his goodness. The Bible teaches that all of humanity, every, every face in this room, every face out there, all of humanity stands condemned before God because he made us for himself, to love him most, to glorify him, and we have all fallen short. We've all loved other things more. There's always things more important to us than God. We've, because he's not most important to us, we've broken his commands. We all stand rightly condemned before God for our treason. But because God loves us, because despite our sin, he loves us massively And passionately, God sent his son Jesus from heaven to take the condemnation we deserve, to take the death we deserved on the cross, to take our punishment so we could go free, so we could be forgiven, so we could be adopted as children of God. Salvation comes as a gift, not a purchase. It's on God's initiative, not ours. We receive it through trusting in Jesus, not through doing anything, not through being really good, not through making lots of sacrifices, not through becoming monks. We receive it as a gift through trusting in Jesus. God relates to us not according to our goodness, but according to his. That's grace. And so you might think that grace, since, since what we do doesn't contribute anything to our salvation, what we do doesn't make God love us even this much more, you might think, well, then it, grace means it doesn't matter how we live. Grace means we can live however we want. But Paul says that grace is the reason we should live godly lives. He says grace is the reason we will live godly lives. He says that when you understand that your good works can do nothing for you, that you're, you're saved by grace alone, by what Jesus has done alone, when you, when you understand that, you're going to want to please God. You're going to want to obey. You're going to want to live a godly life. Does that, does that make sense to you? It's okay if it doesn't yet, because that's where we're going today. Um, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, has said that a lot of people, when they think about Christianity, think that the message of Christianity is, I obey, therefore I am accepted. I, I work hard, I keep the Ten Commandments, I'm a good parent, I am a good employee, I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. But the message of Christianity is, I'm accepted by grace, because of what Jesus has done, therefore I obey. When you understand this, you'll understand the heart of the Christian life. And so let's look at this passage together. We're going to look this morning at what grace has done, what grace will do, and what grace is doing. What grace has done, will do, and is doing. So what grace has done, 
Paul says, is redeem. Paul says in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So he says the grace of God has appeared. What does he mean? We said, we said that grace is the undeserved favor of God. It's God working for the unworthy. And when he, when he says that God's grace has appeared, he means it's become visible. It's become tangible. The grace of God appeared when Jesus was born into the world. Grace took on a face. It comes to us in a person. That's what, we know that's what Paul's talking about because he says that this grace that appeared is the grace that brings salvation for all people, which is what Jesus came to do. And so when he says bringing salvation for all people, he doesn't mean every single person, like just automatically you wake up, everyone's saved. That's not what he means. What he means is all kinds of people. So rich people and poor people, dark-skinned people and light-skinned people, successful people, total failures, people with happy marriages, successful kids, people with marriages that are falling apart and kids that that just never call and never come home. There's no one who is too bad to receive God's grace and salvation. There's no one who's too far to receive it. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And Paul unpacks the nature of that salvation in verse 14. He says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, a people for his own possession. So what does redeemed mean? What is redemption? Well, it's a, it's a word that means being set free at a price, a price paid that sets you free. So it's a, it's a term from the slave market, which still existed when Paul was writing. So uh, this is the situation to imagine. You know, back in, in Paul's day, if you got into serious debt, there wasn't any bankruptcy to declare. If you got into such debt to somebody that you couldn't pay them back, you would sell yourself into slavery to that person. You'd become a bond servant to them until you had worked off the debt that you owed them. So I just, you just imagine the shame of walking out in the streets where you used to walk as a free person and now you're, you're off on an errand for your master. You're working for someone else. You belong, in a sense, to them. And you, you imagine kind of the hopelessness of feeling like I've got this massive debt I'm never going to get it paid off. I'm going to be working like this for the rest of my life. And then imagine that a wealthy relative comes, appears on the scene, and pays your debt completely. You you go free. That is redemption. That's ransom. It's It's being set free by a price paid. And Paul says that that's what Jesus did on the cross. He says that we've been redeemed from all lawlessness. Jesus gave his life to set us free from lawlessness, from disobedience, from ungodliness. So why do we need to be set free? Because apart from grace, we're slaves. We can't obey God. We can't do the good things we want to do. And some of you know exactly what this feels like. You want to, get, you want to stop getting so angry at your kids. You, you want to let go of the bitterness. You want to never look at pornography again. You want to stop, and you just can't. You're a slave. Apart from Christ, we're not able to obey God. We're slaves to lawlessness, but Jesus died to break the chains. Jesus died to redeem us from all lawlessness, to set us free. When we trust in Jesus, we are set free 
from the power of sin, we are actually able to obey God. So if you're a Christian, and it doesn't always feel this way, but if you're a Christian, you don't have to sin anymore. You will. (laughs) I will. We do every day, but the power of sin has been broken. You don't have to. You can obey God. God has sent his Holy Spirit into our lives to give us power to live a godly life. His grace has made a way for us to become what we know we ought to be. So Jesus gave himself to redeem us, Paul says, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So not only does Jesus break the power of sin, Jesus makes us clean. He cleanses us from the guilt of our sin, from the stain, from the shame. Jesus didn't die for clean people. He didn't die for unstained people, for people who have it all together and don't need any help. Jesus died to make filthy people clean. He died to make us clean, to wash us, to make us new. This is what grace offers. There was a, in the 20th century, there was a Welsh preacher in London called Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he told the story of a man who went away on holiday. He went away from home and then came back to his home to find a friend waiting for him. And his friend said, while you were away, a bill came due, and I paid the bill for you. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, you wouldn't know how to respond to your friend until you knew how great the payment was. If he, if he paid, you know, a couple bucks to collect some mail for you, you'd be thankful. That, that's really, that's convenient. I appreciate not having to run out after just getting home from the holiday to do that. But if your house was in default and he paid off your mortgage, you'd respond very differently, wouldn't you? You'd be over-the-top thankful. We don't know how to respond to a gift until we know how costly it is. So what kind of response is appropriate to Jesus? What did it cost him to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify us for himself? Paul says that he gave himself for us. It cost him himself. It cost him everything. He gave everything. And what did he give it for? Why did he give everything? Why did he give himself Paul says he did it to get us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He he did it because we are his treasure. Jesus gave himself to get you. That's what he gave the payment for. Who has ever loved you like this? And don't you think, remember we're talking about how grace trains us to live godly lives. Don't you think that if if you understood that love, if you really knew what it was like, don't you think that that kind of love would change your life? Of course it would. Not long ago, my older son, Joshua, and I were getting, getting into fights almost every night at bedtime because um, Joshua would want me to stay in bed with him, to lie down. I wanted to go eat Oreos on the couch and watch The West Wing on Netflix. And so I would want to get up, and he would start to, you know, get upset, and I would say, you have to stay in bed. I would leave the room. He would leave the room. He'd get disciplined. He'd get back in bed. I'd leave the room. He'd leave the room, and we would just do that over and over and over. And I, I realized something about why he was getting out of bed. He was getting out of bed because he didn't feel secure in my love. He could tell that there was somewhere else I wanted to be. There was something that was more important to me at that moment than he was, and he couldn't just lie in bed and rest knowing that there was something off about the way that I felt about him. He, he, he wasn't resolved. He had to get out and find me. So I started taking him to bed earlier so I wasn't in such a rush, and I'd lie down with him, and 
we'd read his volcano book, and we, you know, we'd talk about what we did that day, what we'd do the next day. I would give him a kiss. I would give his bear Toby a kiss, tuck him in, and it's not perfect, but it's better. It's better because once he was assured of my love, once he was secure in my love, he could trust that what I was telling him to do was good. He could trust that my commands were for his good, and that's what happens for us. When we see how much Jesus loves us, when we see that he gave his life, he gave himself for us, that we're secure in his love, we'll love him in return. And as we grow in love for him, we'll trust him that what he says to do, the life he says to live, we'll trust that it's good. It comes out of a heart of love for us and we'll begin to be changed by grace. So if your life isn't changing, how much do you make of what Jesus did on the cross? So redemption is what grace has done. Now we want to see what grace will do. What grace will do is glorify. Paul says in verse 13 that we who have trusted in Jesus are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our life in this world is a life of waiting. It's a time of waiting. And it's not the kind of waiting you do in the doctor's office where you're just killing time until the thing happens that you have to get done. It's the waiting of being engaged to be married. And there's this day of unbelievable joy coming and you're, you're leaning into it. You're longing for it to come. It just You're anticipating how good that will be. That's the kind of waiting we do for our blessed hope. He says that it's our blessed, our happy hope, the appearing of Jesus. So the Bible teaches that Jesus came once in humility to redeem us, and he will come again in glory. So why is the return of Jesus a blessed hope? Why is it worth longing for? Because when Jesus comes again, the world will experience the blessing of God in richness and in completeness. The world will be healed. So the return of Jesus will be the end of sin. Everyone who is trusted in Jesus, when Jesus comes, in a flash, you will be changed and you will never desire evil again, ever. And, and its evil's presence will be removed from the world. Justice will be done. It'll be the end of injustice. So never again will anyone oppress someone else because of the color of their skin or because of where they grew up. It will be the end of violence. It'll be the end of fear. There'll be nothing to fear. It'll be the end of doubt because we will see him as he is. It'll be the end of pain. Some of you are carrying chronic pain and disease in your body that's going gonna, gonna to last the rest of your life. But it's not going to last forever because when Jesus comes, you'll be healed and you'll never feel it again. It'll be the end of death. And when death goes, so goes mourning, so goes sadness forever. So when Jesus comes, everyone who has trusted in him will experience complete and perfect joy from that moment forever. Every human relationship will be marked by perfect love. Can you imagine a world in which everyone loves their neighbor as they love themselves? Forever. And best of all, the world will be filled with the presence and the love and the knowledge of God. God will never seem absent. He'll never be hard to find. We will enjoy him completely without interruption forever. That's why it's our blessed hope. That's what Paul has in mind. Jesus, our Savior, and he says our God and Savior, Jesus, our great God and Savior, will come in glory, and we and all of creation will be changed to share his glory. We'll be glorified. We'll become like him. We'll be totally new. That's our hope. 
It's utterly certain, and it's all by grace, isn't it? We haven't done anything to earn that. That's out of God's goodness, not ours. And if that was your hope, if, if nothing was more fixed in your mind than the beauty of that day, don't you think that would change your life? Of course it would. In the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Pevensey children are traveling on a train. And all of a sudden, as they're traveling, they, there's a loud noise and a great jolt, and they at first think that they've been in a railway accident, but they suddenly find themselves in Narnia. They've been called there by Aslan, the great lion. And they, they come for one last adventure, and as things begin to wrap up, they don't want to go back to England. And I'm, no offense meant, I'm sure. So Lewis writes, Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother, and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Paul says that in this life we're awaiting our blessed hope. Lewis says that this is only the, the cover and the title page. How would your life be different if you knew that everything you experience, everything you suffer in this world was only the preface? It was only the beginning of the life that goes on forever. For one thing, you wouldn't feel nearly as much pressure in this life to satisfy yourself. If you believe that when you die, you turn to dust and that's it, of course you're going to try to get all the satisfaction out of this life that you can. You're going to try to get as much for yourself as you can because this is all there is. Why inconvenience yourself for another person? Why give away what you could spend on yourself? Why, why deny yourself any pleasure, right? Carpe diem. If this is all that there is, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if you know that this life is like a snap of the fingers, that this is just the dot before the line, it's so much easier to serve your spouse rather than to serve yourself. It's so much easier to spend your day off encouraging a friend rather than just, you know, lounging at the beach, which is often a great way to spend a day off. It's so much easier to give what had been your travel budget to your mother to help her pay off her medical bills. It's easier to defer satisfaction for yourself when you know that ultimate satisfaction is coming. It's easier to pass up a cookie at lunch when you know there's cake and ice cream after dinner. So that's one way the return of Christ transforms our life. Another is, if this Jesus who is returning is the one who died for us, our Savior, and we love him for what he did, don't you want to be found when he comes doing what's pleasing to him? Serving him, serving each other, and not serving ourselves. Our guilt has been taken away. Our, our shame, in a sense, has been washed away. But, but how ashamed we will feel 
if when Jesus comes and history is rolled up, he'll find us just serving ourselves as if he weren't coming, as if this life was all there is. When our hope is in the appearing of the glory of Jesus and not in anything else, not in making partner, not in traveling the world, not in settling down and having some kids, when our hope is in the appearing of the glory of Jesus, it will change our lives. It has to. So if your life isn't changing, how much do you make of the return of Jesus? Grace has redeemed. Grace will glorify. And finally, what grace is doing, it's training. Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So grace trains us to live a certain kind of life now. And Paul describes this life as kind of a change of clothes. He says, we have to put some things off. We have to renounce some things so we can put other things, beautiful things, on. And, and what that means is, I don't know if you, if you caught kind of the implication of that, but that means that even if you trust, when you've trusted Jesus, you don't change automatically, right? You don't go to bed, you know, full of fear and full of desires that you shouldn't have, and then just wake up changed. Perfect. No temptation. Let's go. He says that even those who have trusted Jesus still have to renounce certain things. There's some things to put off. There's some things to put on. Now, he's at work in us. His spirit is working to change us, but we have a choice to make. We have to choose to put off and to put on. And the focus is on what we have to put on, but we have to also look at what we have to take off. So Paul says, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And that describes our life before we trusted Jesus, a life lived without reference to God as though God's not there, a life that's ruled not by grace, not by love for God, but ruled by our desires. Whatever we want in the moment, we just follow that, right? We're slaves. And those things still tempt us, don't they? We're still tempted to look to money for security rather than looking to God, to neglect our family so we can work, 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 so we can just be a little bit more safe, have a little bit more put away. We're still tempted to look to romantic relationships to affirm and validate us, to show us our value, rather than seeing how, much, how valuable we are to God in the cross. We're still tempted to medicate our pain with drinking and partying rather than casting our burdens on God. So the power of sin is broken, but the allure of sin is still there. But Paul says that when we deeply experience grace, it will train us to say no to those things and say yes to the life he describes as self-controlled, upright, and godly. So self-controlled means that we're not being ruled by what we want, that we are in control of our desires. They're not running amok in control of us. He says that our life will be upright, which means we'll treat people justly as they deserve to be treated. We won't use them for ourselves. Self-controlled, upright, and godly. We'll relate, relate rightly to God. We'll love him We'll trust him, we'll fear him, we'll obey him, not because we have to, but because we want to and because we can. Paul says that if we let grace train us, we'll have a whole new life. So this is the question you need to ask yourself. And, I mean, be as honest as you can in your own heart. Does that sound like good news to you? If you imagine, imagine God holding out to you two packages, and in the first package is forgiveness, total forgiveness, you're forgiven, and he would leave your life exactly as it is. Nothing will change. You'll go on just as you've been going until you die, and then you go to heaven. So forgiveness, heaven, no change. 
Or in the second package, he offers to you forgiveness, your sins are wiped away, but utter transformation. He'll, he, will, he will root out the dark desires of your heart and replace them with godly desires. He will convict you of the wrongness of things that never bothered you before. You'll give up things you thought you could never live without. You'll lose friendships because they don't like who you're becoming. But at the end of the process, you'll look like Jesus and you'll enjoy intimacy with God. And when you die, you'll go to heaven. So package one, forgiveness, heaven, no change. Package two, forgiveness, heaven, total change. Now, be honest with yourself. Don't, don't raise your hand, please. Would you actually prefer that God just leave you alone? Would you rather him just not interrupt, not mess with what's working? Would you rather him not invade by his grace? If, if you feel that way, there is so much of grace left for you to experience. God made you to know him, not just to get what he gives, but to know him as a man knows his friend, as a wife knows her husband, to know him deeply. Nothing else but his love will ever satisfy you. The most miserable person in the world is a half-hearted Christian. Do you know that? The most miserable person in the world is a half-hearted Christian because you can't, really, you can't really go back to your old life anymore because you can't enjoy it with a clear conscience and yet you can't really fully walk with God because you still feel convicted and guilty about the things you're trying to hold on to. You, can't, you don't really fit in with your old friends anymore and yet you don't feel like you can really press into Christian friendships because you're afraid they're going to find out that you're still nurturing all these things in your life. So you fall between the stools. If you're there this morning, that's a pretty terrible way to live, isn't it? It's awful. So are you ready to try something else? Paul says that Jesus died to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He didn't die just to forgive you, so you can go to heaven when you die. That's wonderful, obviously. No hell is, is I'm, I'm for no hell. But he died to transform us now. He died to give us a passion for the things he loves, to make us zealous for good works. He gave himself to utterly change your heart. Will you let him do it? Will you, will you let him train you by his grace? This is better news. It would be cruel of God to forgive us and then just leave us as we were to leave us to the desires that are killing us. It's his grace that changes us. So if, if this morning you're one of those who's been comforting yourself that Jesus died to forgive you, but you've just been actively trying not to change, to just keep things as they were, Jesus invites you this morning to renounce ungodliness and to embrace the life you were made for, the life he secured in the cross. He invites you to look again to the cross where not just your forgiveness was secured, not just your eternal life, but a, a radical change of your life now. He has the power to absolutely transform your life, so look to Jesus and trust in him. When, when, when we read that Paul said that grace con- trains us to renounce ungodliness, something may have immediately come to your mind. You may know right away what it is that God's calling you to walk away from. Do you believe that Jesus' death has broken the power of that sin over you, that you don't have to go back, that you can be different? And can you trust that a God who loves you enough to send his son to die loves you enough to give you good commands that are full of joy and satisfaction for you? Trust him. And maybe you're on the outside of all this. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never heard it this way. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, you are estranged 
from the God who made you. And God's son Jesus has given his life, taken condemnation and punishment and death, so you can be reconciled, forgiven, and totally transformed. You can't earn it, so don't try. You can't make yourself worthy. It's all by grace. Receive it as a gift. Invite Jesus not just to forgive you, but to transform you. Think of what kind of community our church would be if this was happening in each of our lives. Think how much joy we'd have together as we reflect on what Jesus has done to set us free and make us new. Think how much we'd love him in return and how as we grow in love for him, we'd love each other and everyone made in his image. Think how differently we'd experience the sufferings of this life, the diseases and the debts and the disappointments if our ultimate hope wasn't in this life at all, but in the return of Jesus. Think how free we'd be and think how much we'd stand out in Cayman if we were trained, when we're trained, by grace to live godly lives. Don't you want to find out? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for your grace. We thank you for the grace that appeared in Jesus. We thank you that he gave himself, his life, in, in horrible suffering so that we could be purified and made his people so that he could have us. And I ask that you, would, that you would make your grace have its intended effect, that you would purify a people for your own possession, that you would make us clean, that you would make us new, that you would change us. Father, change us by your grace out of joy and gratitude and trust and use us as your people in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.